You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to the World Population Day 2022 episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name. Ending infinite growth on a finite planet is my game. It has become a tradition on PGAP to cover World Population Day, if indeed three seasons is long enough to warrant the use of the term tradition. As Communications Manager for Sustainable Population Australia, I'd almost feel doing a cause a disservice if I didn't. Also, for a topic that is so often misunderstood and under rug swept, it is one time the year when more eyes are pointed toward the issue than usual. It is almost remiss of any coverage of degrowth to ignore the overpopulation issue. After all, it is part of the human impact or IPAT equation where P equals population, A equals affluence, T equals technology. As I am recording this intro, the Supreme Court of the USA has just upended the Roe versus Wade case, ruling no constitutional right to abortion in the USA. Regardless of one's opinion on abortion, it remains a choice of necessity for so many women where American society has failed in its provision to protect women from unwanted pregnancy or ensure that disadvantaged mothers have community support to raise their children out from further disadvantage. The ideology behind much of the Christian-dominated conservative thinking in the US is that human life seems to be sacred for the sake of it and in very high quantities, but the actual quality of life the individual during their own lifetime is secondary, particularly if their values are antithetical to those of the Christian right. It is a similar ideology that has resulted in the USA being a historical leader in jeopardising and slashing international foreign aid funding to family planning and reproductive health care. Meanwhile, there remains 121 million unintended pregnancies worldwide each year. One might have reason to think that the United Nations Population Fund, UNFP, might be up in arms on the systemic erosion of reproductive health care in the face of 8 billion people on the planet later this year. However, their write-up of World Population Day on July the 11th is a curious beast indeed. Considering they are a population fund and have some ownership of the day, they seem weirdly willing to brush off the issues altogether. Now, let's see. The website says, A world of 8 billion toward a resilient future for all. A bit optimistic, but fine, let's keep going. They say, Then there will be alarmists claiming that the world is on the verge of either disastrous overpopulation or catastrophic population collapse. Hold on, we're alarmists now? And anyway, isn't it UNFP's responsibility to own at least some concern on overpopulation? But engineering population numbers has not proven successful in the past. Rather, it only serves to undermine human rights. Actually, as we find out in a minute, this statement is an incorrect assessment of history. But focus should be on people, not population. Reducing people to numbers strips them of their humanity. Does it not go the other way, though? 
Do all the growth boosters, including nationalist pro-natal politicians, patriarchal religious heads and big business who talk in terms of larger numbers of us, get the same lecture from the UNFP, but in the opposite direction? However, my favourite quote is toward the end. In an ideal world, 8 billion people means 8 billion opportunities. Let no alarmist headline distract from the work at hand. In a world of 8 billion, there must always be space for possibility. Good heavens, have emptier platitudes never been so croaked in the past? A recent article on the overpopulation project was titled History was rewritten to delegitimalise population concerns. We need to reassert the truth. And authored by Sustainable Population Australia's Jane O'Sullivan, past guests on PGAP. The article challenges the notion posited by many, including the UNFP apparently, that most historical attempts at family planning initiatives end up as a eugenic haze disaster and that the only way forward is through education. Jane opens up by saying, it takes a certain level of cultural indoctrination not to connect large families with impoverishment. She says, the international family planning movement began in the 1960s as a humanitarian response to the very evident threats that population growth posed to economic development and food security in the global south. I am unaware of any instance where they advocated targeting any particular race or ethnic group where they advocated coercive measures. Most countries that implemented family planning programs in the 1960s, 70s and 80s use only voluntary measures adapted to local context and culture. And finally, meanwhile, in the rewritten history, successful family planning programs did not exist and past fertility decline is seen as driven variously by infant survival rates, women's education, urbanisation industrialization or general enrichment. Yet the few studies that compare these factors with the prevailing family planning program effort demonstrate the overwhelmingly greater influence of the latter. So if history has indeed been rewritten by those who consider themselves to be well-meaning, well it seems like both history and World Population Day need to be reclaimed. For this episode, I invited back USA-based Karen Schrag from Moving Upstream, who was a guest back in Season 2. This time she brought with her two fellow activists from north of the border in Canada. This includes Madeleine Weld, President of the Population Institute of Canada since the mid-90s, and Valerie Allen, Canadian-born author and activist. Karen approached me with the idea of a four-way conversation to unite population activists from multiple countries and observe the similarities and differences between the national borders. Furthermore, as the population sustainability movement is often perceived to be populated by men, even though many of the issues directly impact women, one thing that the UNFP and I can agree on, that this would be a great opportunity for three women to come together and make a united contribution to this ongoing debate. I was slightly daunted by the prospect of bringing together several people from four time zones together for recording, but although this meant me staying up past midnight for the recording, I'm glad the whole affair was relatively straightforward. I think we all did well to synchronise our Q&A succinctly for an hour-long interview. 
Without further ado, please welcome Karen Schrag, Madeline Weld, and Valerie Allen for the 2022 World Population Day special on PGAP. Three women, two countries, one message. Welcome back to a very special episode of PGAP, and I always say this episode is special, but today is triply special because I've got three guests for the first time ever. We've got Karen returning, I'm Karen Schrag. Hello, Karen. Hello, Michael. And Karen's brought with her a couple of friends <laughs> from um, Northern America from Canada to be precise. Um, firstly, Madeline Weld. Hello, Madeline. Hello, Michael. And Val Allen. Hello, Val. Hello, Michael. Now, Karen, I'll get you to do the introductions first. For those listeners naughty enough not to have heard your last episode, uh, give us a little spiel on what you've been up to uh, since the moving upstream and the changing our stories on population book we were talking about last almost exactly one year ago well well i've started um doing a talk called why the endangered species act doesn't work and what it is is unless we attack growth with with all barrels um those people who think they're saving wildlife by you know studying them and counting their nests and tagging them i did did some research and they're just not you know or it's not working. I've spoken to two wildlife societies so far, and the ad is open that I will do that. I was just unaccepted by an ecologically infected Montreal. Uh, they did not accept my paper. I was just told that I was not accepted because my talk did not represent new research. And I said, oh, this is a new way to dismiss the people who are anti-growth um, from the ecological science world. So uh, to combat that, I am teaming up with um, a colleague and we are going to use the new sprawl study research that uh, Leon Kalenkowitz has done about how we are sprawling mostly due to, in America, it's an American-based study, but it, it's very relevant. And that's why I invited these two uh, amazing women on this podcast with you because um, sprawl is not unique to the United States. and if I can uh, bash my country uh, uh, as it needs bashing on, on so many levels, but on the level of we always think that we're the center of the universe. And when it comes to growth, unfortunately, we are not. I wish we were the only one growing. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, but we know that Australia and Canada have uh, many of the same issues and for many of the same reasons. And I thought this was more of a global approach to um, the whole idea of not just saving wildlife, but everything we hold dear. Um, due to how population is uh, overpopulated now and still growing. Fantastic introduction, Karen. Thank you very much. Madeline, you're the president of Population Institute Canada since 1995. Um, I was incidentally 12 and travelling New Zealand in 1995, so um, it's been, been a, a few years. I have recently seen one of your articles on the overpopulation project, which one of my colleagues from SPA, Jane, is um, O'Sullivan is heavily involved with, and that is a silent lie that is covering Madagascar's famine. I've always seen Canada as perhaps a more 
obviously colder and perhaps slightly more woke version of Australia with many of the similar problems. In a nutshell, do you want to introduce yourself and (laughs) whether my observations hold true? Sure. You know, it's funny you said you you always saw Australia and Canada similar because a few years ago, well, in 2015, I think it was Stuart Hurlbert, um, who's a population activist in California, he organized a, a, a session at an, I think it was Ecological Society of America meeting. And I gave a talk on Canada. I think it might have been Jenny gave a talk on on Australia, but it was big, cold and hot and or big something and cold and big something and wet. Australia and Canada were kind of um, teamed. I am, yes, as you say, the president of Population Institute Canada, which was founded under a different name in 1992, and I became a member right away. I have been trying to raise awareness of the population issue in Canada, which is which suffers from the myth that Canada has these vast open spaces and can take pretty much an endless number of people, has an endless number of, of resources, and can grow forever. And indeed, there's an organization called the Century Initiative, which promotes the population of of 100 million Canadians by 2100, which is totally insane. We're already at uh, 38 million and we're growing very rapidly. Um, the Trudeau has just upped the um, immigration intake to, to 400,000 and above every year for the next three years. I, I, and we are suffering, as Karen was talking about sprawl, we've got exactly the same problems. The uh, northwestern shore of Lake Ontario is basically a giant megalopolis. <laughs> At the Vancouver, the fellows lived in BC, the, the lower mainland of BC is, is growing rapidly. And to what end? It's not making life better for Canadians. Every country needs to start thinking in terms of sustainability, in terms of population. 400,000 per year is even more than Australia was doing in our heyday. Um, considering I've got friends in Winnipeg who say they're, you know, growing seasons about four months as well. That's uh, mm-hmm. uh, food, <laughs> literally food for thought. Um, yeah. Our final guest is Valerie or Val Allen. You are also a member of the Population Institute Canada. Uh, you're also a prolific author. You author Growing Pains, A Planet in Distress, and you've got a new book, Eight Billion Reasons Population Matters. Hello, Valerie, and um, and describe yourself and the situation as you see it. Well, thanks, Michael. Yes, as you know, I have the, the new book, Eight Billion Reasons Population Matters, and I'm pretty excited about it. It's got a few, few unique features in that it's written by a woman in a male-dominated uh, profession, it seems. And I'm so thankful that Karen has also written a book. But uh, most of the books were written by men before. And it's from a woman's perspective. And I think it has a lot of different information in it than I've been reading. Um, it also has a lot of success stories and solutions. In fact, the last uh, section of each critical world issue uh, chapter is full of uh, solutions and success stories and examples that we can all use. It's written for both the lay audience and the academic audience. And I've designed it for schools with most of the critical world issue chapters um, designed to stand alone because I understand that most uh, instructors now are assigning chapters rather than whole books. 
And so it is a little bit unique. And um, I also have a website called Population in Sync, and it, um, it contains um, most of the information about my books and a lot of quotes. And um, it's something I put a lot of uh, work into. So it's something to check out, I'd say. Excellent. And we'll also include those links in the show notes. Now, Val, you raise an interesting point, um, and that is a lot of the books in the past have been written by men. Indeed, one of the, I suppose, <laughs> one of many criticisms of the population movement is that it tends to be male-dominated and the dialogue of, you know, what are men doing, <laughs> talking about <laughs> reproduction. I think this segues nicely into the next question. And Val, I might get you to start this too. And how did you come to the population issue? And um, Was it a pivotal moment in your life or did it accumulate over time? Well, Michael, I remember that day very well. It was 1971, just a few years after Paul Ehrlich uh, came out with his book, The Population Bomb. And my social studies teacher was talking about the population issue in class. And for me, that was a light bulb moment because suddenly everything started to make sense. All the poverty, the pollution, the loss of species, and all the other critical world issues finally made some sense. It was that then that I realized that most of the pain and suffering on our planet was unnecessary. And that by returning to a sustainable number, we could all thrive. That was also the day I decided to remain child-free because I wanted to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. And I have never regretted that. Of course, at that time, I never would have envisioned child-free groups starting up all over the world or that humanity could possibly reach 8 billion by 2022. In coming years, I began working with environmental groups and then population groups, which led to the writing of my latest book, 8 Billion Reasons Population Matters, and this podcast with all of you. Surely today must be a historic event with four of the planet's most dedicated population activists gathered <laughs> to create this media event. And I feel very fortunate to be part of it. Oh, thank you so much, Val. Um, Karen, why population for you? And why not just um, fit everyone into the state of Texas and give them all electric cars? <laughs> You know, people are, 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 number one, they're horrible at numbers. I blame all the math teachers in the world for not teaching the exponential function, as Al, Dr. Al Bartlett always said, that we don't understand what that is. But it's not just about math. It's math and it's relative to, to resources that they really don't understand. Because when you talk about 39 million people, you realize that's the population of California. So people look at Canada on the map, and then they look at California, and they go, oh, how could Canada possibly be overpopulated? When it doesn't even have as many people as California, when when it's so relative to how many mountains you have and how much land is dedicated to wildlife and 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 raising food and so on, so that ecological divide is just gets bigger and bigger. And and I dedicated my life and my career to being a nature naturalist and a nature center uh, director for uh, I was in the business for 35 years. My initiation was also like Val's in um, 11th grade. 
I read the population bomb and was affected by it, but then sort of put it in the back of my mind and thought, oh no, we can just go try to get clean water and try to save the animals without really dealing with that dicey issue. And then as fate, luck or whatever would have it, the neighbor to the, let's see, the west of my nature center, literally he can see the nature center out of his front door, is the founder of World Population Balance, David Paxson. And he called me up my first month in, and it was about an hour conversation on the phone. And I went, yeah, I've been a fool. I, I, I need to bring this back into my life. And I immediately jumped on his advisory board, and we became cohorts and speakers. And that was sort of the, uh, the seed was planted when I was younger. And then I realized, well, life gets very distracting. you got to raise money for your budgets. You've got to do all the things that have to be done. And... Uh, and I was committed to the idea, but not knowing, like, I think many, they you don't know how to navigate the issue. And all of us, I think, still part of us feels like a novice because it's, it's, it's uncharted territory in so many ways. Thank you so much, Karen. And uh, Madeline, I assume you didn't become president of the Population Institute of Canada in order to make lots of friends. So why population for you? <laughs> It was the perks and the privileges, no. Um, <laughs> and, the respect, and the respect from environmentalists. <laughs> exactly. Um, actually, I can barely remember a time in my life when I wasn't aware of the population issue. My dad was a diplomat, and in November of 1959, when I was a few months short of turning five, he was posted to Rio de Janeiro, which was the capital of Brazil at the time. And... Um, I remember being struck by the contrast between the, the rich and the poor. The rich lived in uh, these sort of behind walls and gated communities, and the walls often had shards of glass on them to keep out the poor. And um, the poor lived in these vast favela slums. And as it happened, our house was a, a very nice house, and it was on a hill, um, and it had a, a wall as well, and um, it had mango trees. There was a part where you could just look over the wall very easily. And sometimes boys from nearby favelas uh, would ask me to throw mangoes at them. And I was aware, I was, you know, very young, but I was aware that I was really lucky to be on that side of the wall and not the other side of the wall and that I hadn't done anything particular to deserve it and they hadn't done anything in particular to deserve where they were. So we lived in Brazil for two and a half years. And then in 1965, when I was 10 years old, my dad was posted to Pakistan where we lived for two years. For the first six months, we were in Karachi, which was the former capital. And then we moved to Rawalpindi, which is near the new capital of Islamabad. That was at the time still being built. And again, in Pakistan, I was um, struck by the contrast between the rich and the poor. In, in Rawalpindi, uh, we kids were sent to a boarding school in Murray, which is north of Islamabad, and it's in the foothills of the Himalayas. And I was aware at the time that those beautiful forests surrounding the schools might be cut down if the population grew too much. I mean, I, I just, I just knew it. And earlier when, uh, when we were in Karachi, I had attended a, a British convent and I remember a geography teacher speaking about the vastness of the oceans, kind of as if they were infinite. And I remember thinking they're vast, but they're not infinite. You know, even at that young age, I was just because I think just because it had been shown to me by virtue of, my travels, that the human population was really an issue. So then, you know, then I came back to Canada, I went to university and, you know, did all those things. Um, but, I, you know, I was still aware of population. So when retired engineer Whitman Wright founded the 
original predecessor of PIC, which was called the Ottawa Family Planning Project, and I happened to meet him at a humanist event. Um, you know, I, I was all in about joining. Eventually became president. I just want to say I didn't oust him. It's it's uh, <laughs> so it, I've been president ever since uh, 19, uh, 1995 because nobody else seems to to be fighting for the job. But just as a matter of interest, in 1959, when I went to Brazil, its population was was just over 70 million. Now it's 215 million. But so that's a threefold increase in, in 63 years. But the good news is that while its fertility rate in 1960 was just over six, in 2020, it's down to or 20, it's down to 1.74. Um, Pakistan in 1965 had only 51 million, now 229 million. So that's a fivefold increase in 57 years. In 65, its total fertility rate was 6.6. Now it's down to only 3.55. So it's still pretty high. Um, it's not doing as well as Brazil in terms of total fertility. A lot of the people who understand population have done a lot of traveling you know into the global south as well sometimes i feel <laughs> it's the non-travelers who who don't get it now we're going to stick with you just for a second uh, another second madeline um and that's a question on how population affects canada and uh, the province in which you live. Now, I know on Twitter uh, the other day, I, th I think this was actually maybe been from Population Institute of Canada, which says that most of the population, the vast majority, like 95%, is right on the border of the US. And um, that, you know, triangle, <laughs> I'm an Australian, so I don't know what to call the peninsula triangle thing that goes into the, <laughs> that goes into the lakes. Yeah, yeah, actually, if if you Google it, um, in case anybody's interesting, if fifty, if you say fifty percent of Canadians live below this line, the map will probably come up. Yeah, it's, it's true that about over ninety percent of Canadians live within one hundred and fifty miles of the U.S. border. So really, Canada is a is a country that stretches along the U.S. border. There's a lot of um, cold, empty, well, not empty. But cold space in Canada, that is not suitable for, for human habitation. Yeah, like the, the province of Ontario where I live, which is by population the, the largest province, it's got about 14.6 uh, million people. And it's um, got the biggest city, Toronto, which is rapidly growing. So 93%, about 13.6 million people, live in 16% of Ontario. So that's Southern Ontario and Eastern Ontario, Ottawa, where I live. The Canadian Shield covers 61% of the province and only 7% of the population lives there. That's about 1 million people. And the Hudson Bay lowlands, which are sort of peatlands and wet, well, wetlands south of Hudson Bay and James Bay, covers 23% of the area. And like about less than 5,000 people live there, like 0.03%. So again, 93% of the population lives in 16% of the province, which when you think, um, you know, Ontario's big, yes, it is, but much of it is not suitable for human habitation. Now, when you come to things like farmland, so uh, obviously Canada's best farmland is not in the north, and about 50% of, of Canada's best farmland, that's defined as class one, is in southern Ontario. And according to the Ontario Farmland Trust, 
150,000 acres or 18% of that best, very best farmland were lost to urbanization in the two decades between 1976 and 1996. And then between 1996 and 2006, it lost at least 600,000 acres of farmland. And it's currently losing about 175 acres of farmland every day. So what we're doing by importing large numbers of people into Canada, that is deliberately growing Canada's population, is paving over our farmland in a hungry world, which is crazy. The thing is, Canada's had a total fertility rate of 2.1 or below. It's currently 1.5 or below 1.5 since 1970. So we've had several generations of low fertility. Um, with balanced migration, our population would be 28 million. Balanced migration being same numbers, leaving is coming in. We would have stabilized to 28 million, which may be too much, but better than 38 million and rapidly growing. Yeah, thank you for the uh, insight in this statistics uh madeline that's helped me learn a lot about canada's situation how similar it is to australia's it's uncanny um val you live in alberta is that correct that's right what can you tell me about alberta and elsewhere in canada are the northwest territories being selfish has yellow knife been selfish for not being <laughs> a mega city of 30 million people well the truth of it is that in our global community of almost 8 billion people, whatever happens in one part of the world impacts every being everywhere on Earth, both humans and other species. Nothing happens in isolation. For example, in my small community of the Crow's Nest Pass, we are facing housing shortages, conflict over land use, and a great loss in wildlife similar to almost every other place in the world. In my province of Alberta, our government is promoting the gas and oil industry and what has been named Slaughterhouse Alley in our cattle regions, all in the name of economic growth. In my country of Canada, the government is promoting more immigration, as Madeline mentioned, which will keep our population increasing at an unsustainable pace. And this is all driven by our flawed economic system that's based on the GDP. All of these issues reflect what is happening all over the world. And yet the population connection has been totally omitted from the conversation by most of our decision makers. So that is why I wrote my books in hope of encouraging debate about population, as Paul Ehrlich's book did in the 60s. Of course, I don't think any book could, could compare to his because that is what really started it all in the 60s was his book, The Population Bomb. But we do need another revolution. <laughs> we need <laughs> exactly. uh, adrenaline in the population sustainability arm and um, hopefully uh, you're part of that movement, Val. Karen, now... Yes. When I look at Google Maps and that stretch from Washington, D.C. to Boston, I remember that's where I first heard the term megalopolis, you know, where the, where the urban expanse of the cities is so much they start touching on each other. So it's actually, you know, almost like a thousand kilometres stretch of continuous urban sprawl in the northeast. So what can you tell me about the U.S. experience? Much like what Madeline said about Canada, um, our 
native fertility rate, it's pretty stable, 1.7 for the Caucasian and 2.2 for, for people of color. So it, it's right around there, but it's been growing uh, mostly by immigration. And, and I like to refer back to the fact that I'm a granddaughter of a Russian immigrant and uh, on the Russian-Polish border. But back in the 1920s, when um, my grandfather and his uh, brothers came here, legal immigration was about 150,000. Now, uh, my latest check is that uh, we're now issuing 675,000 uh, permanent visas, but we're also allowing what we call chain migration, which is, you know, bring in your spouses and bring in your your children and your grandchildren and your mother-in-law. And, you know, everybody wants their family around them. That's understandable, but it's, again, not sustainable. And I thought it was fascinating that, um, that we've actually gained population during the COVID, um, even though we were, you know, supposedly slamming our doors and making it very hard to move around. Uh, we gained about 2 million people since since the pandemic. It's, it's hard to see what cities have done to bend over backwards to promote growth here. Um, we have something called TIF financing, which, which I don't know if you guys have that in your countries, but um, what it does is it defers taxation to bring in development so that um, cities have to pay for all of the infrastructure for growth and uh, they won't receive any benefits till maybe that corporation is long out of business. Sometimes these are 25-year deals and they are just salivating at the ribbon-cutting ceremonies going, look what we've done, we've improved the world. So kind of at the heart in uh, in the U.S. and I'm sure in elsewhere in the world is this attachment of progress to growth. There's a candidate... Um, that's running for mayor in the city where I used to work. And I, we, I just talked and, she, and her whole thing is, but these people need somewhere to live. And so the desperation to build housing and high rises and these horrible living environments that we now know through COVID are the worst ways to spread viruses are packing people and stacking them. And she said, well, I think it's environmental, Karen, because now we're not sprawling. And I just said, well, let me just educate you that it's kind of deciding that you're an alcoholic and you're going to change types of alcohol. You're going to you're going to drink this brand of vodka and not this brand, and and you're just not going to be an alcoholic anymore. I said both are bad, and let me tell you why. For every person you bring into your city, you're going to need more land to feed them, and you're going to demand more water on a specific aquifer. Our aquifers are being over pumped here in the Midwest over four times their rate of recharge, and now add more and more climate change. We're running out of water, even though we have the Great Lakes that they want to drain to, um, you know, there, there are plans to want to pipeline them to um, Arizona, where they're much, much, much more uh, drought. I, I live in Minnesota, have all my life, of over 10,000 lakes. All, all, all of them are compromised with mercury poisoning, All every single one of them. And they're all overpopulated with cabins. Everyone wants their cabin and lawn on the lake. That's our situation here. But we're still married to the idea of growth. And um, our, pop our state population is 5.6 million, still growing. And everyone says, oh, we're still growing. Isn't that great? And I just think, um, I love your podcast, the post growth. It's like, oh my goodness, what could be better than growth? <laughs> we have to detach, we have to detach ourselves. But to me, it's like looking at the dandelions in my lawn as food, I eat them every morning. Uh, they're bee food. And my neighbors, literally my neighbors, are out there spraying with their pesticides because those are bad things. I, 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 my poetic brain says 
it's no different talking about growth than talking about values of dandelions and um, thinking of them as the enemy. We have to flip these stories, not just change them. They have to be flipped on their heads. Thank you so much, Karen, and really love your use of metaphors too. It's um, <laughs> you're a great storyteller. Now, given what you know about the current state of the biosphere, what are the ethical decisions confronting those who are considering becoming parents today? Actually, I just shared an image on Facebook. It was um, outside the window, the whole world's on fire. And these couple are going, let's have a baby. Let's have a baby. The world is burning. Oh, if I can interject, I love listening to um, stories of, of people who, you know, their careers, especially comedians. And I've never once heard them say, um, yeah, I, I made it now. I'm going to have a family. And, you know, Kevin Hart has this special. And I've never once heard them even consider what the world is going to look like for the future. And uh, I'm so glad you brought it up. Madeline, any thoughts on this. Well, I, I would say there's there still is a lot of social pressure for people to have children. I would advise people don't feel pressure to have a child if it's, you know, it's your decision and don't have a large family <laughs> or whatever you do. Um, but if people didn't, if, if nobody had children because the future is uncertain, there would never have been periods in history, I don't think, where people would have had children because the future often looks pretty grim. Of course, if everybody stopped having children right now, humans would go extinct. And I maybe that is what the voluntary extinction movement wants. It's probably what every other species on Earth, except maybe mosquitoes and our pets, would like. Um, but do we want humanity to go extinct or do we want to shrink it. I think the only way we can survive is, is, is if we shrink humanity um, with one child, where one child families are the norm, uh, more humanity with fewer humans sort of thing. So I think it's a decision that has to be very carefully made with no pressure and also with bearing in mind the overpopulation factor. But I couldn't tell people not to have a child. For example, I've got two sons who are now in their 30s. And, you know, from a population aspect, if they had no kids, that would be great. But from my, as a prospective grandmother, if, you know, one of them had a kid, I, of course, I'd welcome the child. I think what we need to do is where it's ethical to have a small family and where large families are questioned. <laughs> I mean, people still celebrate large families. There was a show of a family with, what, 16 kids or whatever that went on for quite a few years in the U.S. And, you know, every time they had a baby, they'd... Uh, would be another thing. So it, having a child is an ethical decision. It, it shouldn't be something that just happens. It, it is an interesting thing. It'd be a sad world if there were no children in it at all, but it's, it's a sadder world if, if <laughs> there are too many. Val, do you want to bring your own experiences of um, <laughs> being child-free in, into this question? Um, and any reflections or, or whatever notes you'd written down on this issue? Yeah. <laughs> well, when that. I made the decision back in 71, it was um, a lot easier. Uh, we didn't have as many problems and sad to say, but there are so many critical decisions that couples are facing in today's high speed, high cost, pandemic riddled society. 
parents need to consider what kind of world their children would grow up in, what impact our quickly degrading environment will have on the next generation, and what impact their children will have on the environment, especially regarding climate change. I believe that all children should have a fair start in life, but with over 40% of pregnancies unintended today, a fair start is becoming more and more unlikely. Also, we need to ask whether it is ethical to keep increasing the human population when it means the survival of other species is threatened. What gives us the right to cause the extreme rate of extinction that's happening today? We need to achieve a balance so that we can all have a humane existence and leave something for the future generations. For example, did you know that having one less child per family will save 60 tons of CO2 emissions a year, 25 times the emissions avoided by living car-free? So that would be a great place to start, I think. One of the things that I've found with being <laughs> child-free is that it takes a pressure of a lot of the consumption decisions I'm forced to make in the industrialised world. I mean, for example, I bought a um, liquid petroleum gas car because it's 20% less emissions, um, but they're phasing them all out in Australia. So I'm forced to get a regular, I think, gasoline car. It's um, the, the fuel's called in North America. So it's like every environmental decision I've tried to make to reduce my consumption, I'm kind of forced into another way of being and I'm just like well at least <laughs> you know haven't had a child so it's, <laughs> it's it does end with with my bad decisions now the next question what unique problems surround growth when it's due to migration who wants to tackle this one first I'll do it if, if you like you're a brave person Madeline <laughs> <laughs> we're crazy in terms of ecological impact, um, the way a friend of mine puts it, it, it doesn't matter if the new arrival enters from the airport or the maternity ward. However, there have been social stresses from high migration of people from cultures very different from European origin cultures. And these can sometimes lead to friction. Um, in Canada, which was, in terms of population, primarily very almost entirely English, um, French, and other European background with native population as well, but, but not very high, has turned in, has become, through immigration, a very multicultural area, especially in the cities, um, big cities like Toronto um, and Vancouver. So in 1981, there were six ethnic enclaves in Canada, which is defined as an area where more than 30% of the population is quote, visible minority is a term we use in Canada. And in 2012, it went from six to more than 260. But the thing is, in recent decades, newcomers to Canada have been struggling more economically. They haven't been doing as well as in previous eras. And at the same time, because of the high demand for housing, land prices are being driven through the roof. Vancouver, Toronto, and Hamilton. Hamilton is, is a city west of Toronto, farther west along the uh, Lake Ontario. So Vancouver, Toronto, and Hamilton were the top three least affordable cities in North America 
according to a report by Oxford Economics um, from 2021. All, of the, all three cities are Canadian. And Ottawa ranked sixth and Montreal tied for ninth with New York City. So of the top 10 least affordable cities, five North American cities, five are in Canada, although the US has almost 10 times the population. Um, and in Vancouver and Toronto, rich investors, often foreign investors, are buying up land and houses. And the other thing is the ethnic enclaves of today have more staying power than in past eras. That is the people from the past would uh, possibly integrate more into the other, into the population because they, they are poorer um, and they're constantly being replenished through high levels of immigration. So they could become more susceptible to cultural isolation. So I would say that so far what Pierre Trudeau, former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau called Canada's multicultural experiment is working out fairly well socially, although it's been a disaster from an ecological perspective because everybody has a big footprint in Canada and on average, newcomers to Canada increase their greenhouse gas emissions by a factor of four. So a disaster from an ecological perspective, but it's been working out fairly well socially. But all of this happened during an age of plenty. How are we going to do in an age of scarcity? Um, you know, the question is whether racial, cultural and religious differences will exacerbate these problems. And the sad thing is there's been no serious public discussion about Canada's policy of consistent high immigration. Um, pretty much all of the mainstream media are boosters of it. And anyone who challenges the policy runs the risk of being demonized as a racist or xenophobic. So actually, I, I believe that the immigration policy in Canada is being basically used to advance political interests and not has no actual economic benefit per se, because while our GDP is getting bigger, the per capita GDP, which is what counts, is not getting bigger. And in fact, the distribution of wealth is becoming the poor getting poorer, the richer getting richer, and the middle class is getting squeezed out. So from that perspective, from an economic perspective, it's, it's bad. Um, we all have to, every country has to think of stabilizing its own population and Canada definitely should also. I know in Australia, um, well, before COVID, economic migration was about um, 95% of migration and 60% of population growth. And refugee migration was only 5%. Um, so, th but that was a distinction. It's deliberately obfuscated. I mean, one of our ex-Prime Ministers, John Howard, essentially said that over live radio like the differences are all meshed together so people think they're um, protesting against one thing while you know allowing a, another and so you know in Australia economic migration is merely a shifting of middle class people around the globe while so many um, disempowered people do not have the means to to escape or better themselves so Val is this is a similar phenomena that in, in Canada from your perspective? Oh, definitely. Well, what I believe is the one of the biggest problems I see in migration is that it does not take climate limitations into consideration. For example, moving someone from a warm climate like Calcutta to a cold climate like Calgary only increases the consumption rate of that person just to prevent them from freezing to death. <laughs> they will need more hats and coats and boots and scarves and whatever just to go outside in the winter. 
They will need furnaces, insulated houses, winter tires, etc., just to survive here. In Canada, the growing season for food is very short compared to the warmer climates, so more of our food will have to be imported. This will greatly increase emissions and the cost of food. As Madeline said, it will only make the situation worse. So it seems to me that the planet would be much better off if we devoted that same funding to help people in their own country instead. And then they wouldn't be forced to leave the lifestyle they are accustomed to and leave their family ties, all in search of the illusion of the American dream. So moving people from a greatly overpopulated region to a mildly overpopulated region, not yet totally destroyed by growth, uh, it masks the problem temporarily. Karen, it's been, I've observed a great frustration of yours <laughs> that, tell me if I'm paraphrasing you incorrectly here, but um, of even population groups that shy away um, from tackling migration head on. Is that a fair thing for me to say? <laughs> I think that it's very fair. I, I'm I, because I've been saying, you know, uh, as, as Madeline so well said, you know, if growth is a problem, we can't be picking hairs over where growth is coming from. It's not not growth because you don't want to be seen as a racist. It's still growth. In fact, what what the other problem is is that a lot of people come here. They don't come here and leave their customs at the door. They bring their customs with them. We we have the highest Somali population outside of Somalia in Minnesota right now. And that's due to churches who wanted to, these poor people had, you know, nowhere to go and they had, you know, terrible anarchy in their country, but they come with, with their own, their own uh, habits and their own cultures. And they're, they're not going to leave them at the gate. And those cultures often say, you must have a lot of children. Um, they're not really pro women. We're having big struggles with the whole abortion issue. Again, has raised its ugly head here, as you probably have heard. We tend to make sure that our issues are everyone's issues. Um, <laughs> I, 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 when I see the Somali women, you know, pushing their baby carriages around my community, I think, I wonder where they weigh in on this issue. Are they even allowed to have a, a thought about how women shouldn't have to have children if they don't want them? We have to realize our, our, our privilege has been very, very hard work to say. One of my big issues is we work so hard for women's rights in this country, and then to come in and say, no, we're going to continue things like female genital mutilation because that is our culture. I think that's really something we have to have a conversation about because I think when it comes to a society acting cohesively, you can't have red a red stoplight mean both green, well, both go and stop. You have to agree on a cohesive, going forward, sustainable, ethical way of being. And it's extremely difficult to do, as Madeline can attest to it from personally, when you come from very, very different worldviews that are dictated by world religions that are really different when it comes to very basic relationships with, with agency. Part of my doctoral program was to study different worldviews, and agency is really what this is all about. Choosing to decide, we're talking about choosing to decide um, how many children to have. Well, you know, to, to a lot of worldviews, that isn't even within the purview of a woman's decision. And so we're, we're talking about now we want to rescue people and bring them into our borders. Mm -hmm. And then there is no way that that does not change the culture 
of the country. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult to start all over again and say, well, you know, I know you're supposed to have all these children and you're supposed to show social status by that. But, you know, in our country, we don't do that anymore. I mean, you know, try, try barking up that tree. I think it's much, much easier to say we need balanced migration. We need revolving door migration, the kind that doesn't increase the population. Because you know what? Like Alon Tal, one of our colleagues in Israel says, Israel, the land is full. And every first world, I don't even like that word, but developed country is full and over full. If we tell that story well, migration would become a non-issue, a total non-issue. How do you bring someone into a country where they're not going to have enough water? I don't even think that's kind at the very end of the day. It's just not kind to do. And one of the books that I think has helped with the racist part of this conversation is Roy Beck, who I first met when he came with his his now famous or infamous uh, gumball machine, and he showed that 80 million people are added to the world. And he has a, if you haven't seen it, you can look it up on YouTube. Um, it's really a great program. He came to our local library, and I met him for the first time. And and, and he, he showed 80 gumballs, and we're going to take one gumball and bring it to the United States. Have we really made a difference in those gumballs? No, we haven't. And that yet that one gumball isn't something we can even absorb in our country and absorb it well and have enough water and jobs, et cetera. Um, but his latest book called uh, Back of the Hiring Line is a 200-year history of immigration surges, employer bias, and depression of black wealth, is that the real story, the truth is, is that every time, and it's mostly corporate America who sells this story, um, bring them in is because they can pay them lower wages. They will not organize unions and so on. And who goes to the back of the hiring line? The African-American people who deserve to be in the front of the hiring line because they've been so marginalized for so long. Um, I think the, the way forward on this whole issue to me, though, is we have to have a simultaneous mantra that says mm -hmm. overpopulation kills and hate kills, too. We just had a, a horrific mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, by a white supremacist who is using the, the mantra, uh, they shall not replace us. So if we just talk about overpopulation killing, uh, we have to talk about hate killing. Because to me, the reason we're all here is to reduce misery and suffering on the planet. And you don't reduce misery and suffering by ignoring any one of these elements. Although we're very good, we're excellent at ignoring Can I just things. add to uh, what Karen said? I think some people think that rich countries, as, as the Roy Beck video uh, showed, doesn't work as a safety valve for these overpopulated places. Like all of um, Egypt, Haiti, and the Philippines, all three of them have exported about 10% of their population uh, to, to work elsewhere. And then these people send back remittances. But when, when they have a safety valve, when a country has a safety valve and says, oh, our people can just emigrate, it means business as usual continues in those countries. High birth rates continues because governments, you know, don't take responsibility maybe for garbage collection and stuff like that because the families getting remittances are sort of able to get by, continue business as usual. In the meantime, the receiving countries, their environment deteriorates just because of more population. And there's so many false myths like Canada's got this whole thing. We need it because our population is aging. Immigration does zero, has done absolutely zero to change the age structure of Canada. Because as, as Karen was talking about in the U.S., we also have chain migration, family reunification. And it's an issue in, in Europe and in, in every country. So all of the myths 
about the needs of the economic needs being met, they're really for the corporations, cheap labor, bankers with mortgages, developers, speculators, they all benefit, but the people do not economically. Well, unfortunately for the neoliberals, migrants also age, which is uh, very rude of them. So, <laughs> well, while we're here, Madeline, um, maybe you can start off with the next question, which is describing how your approach to overpopulation has changed over the years uh, as an activist and what your greatest challenges and successes have been. Now, um, you've got at least since 1995 to <laughs> uh, reflect on what's uh, not worked even more. <laughs> How about smacking your head against a wall? No. <laughs> well, my approach in terms to the issue, what the issue is, is has not changed. It, it, It is and has been and presumably will continue to be that continuous human population growth on a finite planet is impossible and sooner or later it must end. Um, and the question is how it will end. Will population stop because, um, you know, we have planning and foresight or will it happen because of those positive checks that Malthu described, you know, famine, death, war, all that sort of stuff and uh, natural resource constraints. And unfortunately I'd say the smart money is on Malthus at this point. Um, in terms of my own activism, I've continued to write, um, and speak out and now give Zoom talks and stuff about um, the issue. In previous decades, I, I got more letters to the editor published. It seems to be getting harder these days for some reason, but now I'm more active. Well, Population Institute Canada is, is more active on um, social media and you know I post there as well. So I guess, you know, even surviving as an organization, I guess a little organization uh, in Canada that deals with population is is a good thing. As far as I know, there's only one other organization that um, deals with populations, Canadians for a Sustainable Society. And so I, I we have a, a website and we engage on social media. I've written some articles that have gotten some publicity. I think my favorite is, my own favorite is Deconstructing the Dangerous Dogma of Denial, which takes on the population deniers and the feminists and the, the Marxists who say population is not a problem. Um, I've read that one. It's good. <laughs> it's a, it, it is an orphan issue. And, you know, talking about population can get you accused of racism and, and that sort of thing. I suppose uh, my greatest failure is that the world population has risen by 2.5 billion in the 30 years I've been with PIC. But <laughs> I guess um, population organizations have a lot of hard trouble getting traction in a world where where growth and, and the growthist corporations own the media and all the politicians are growthist. So we're kind of swimming against the stream, but um, we keep on, we keep on keeping on. Uh, now, Karen, you talk about moving upstream. Does it sometimes feel more like yeah. pushing shit uphill or? <laughs> Sorry, that was a oh, really fun boy, question. How do you answer that? Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think, you know, uh, the question like, that it's kind of a uh, sort of a twin question is, you know, are you optimistic or pessimistic is the same kind of thing. And here's here's where I've landed. And I want to see if this resonates with Val or Madeline or you, Michael. I no longer think in terms of hope. I think in terms of integrity. And what I mean by that is um, I get up every morning and, and devote at least part of my day to telling what I what 
um, all evidence points to as the truth about things. And also that I can look at a baby and see a bundle of joy and 59 tons of carbon per year. Mm -hmm. uh, and in other words, both things are true. I know that, that Madeline would make an amazing grandmother. I also know that that grandchild would, and I'm not telling your boys this, you know, would also be, you know, facing issues that we haven't even begun to think about. And so I, I, I think landing an integrity, and sometimes I will say that my eyes cross, I'm sort of concerned they won't uncross, because I realize people are spending their time doing some pretty amazingly wasteful things like I do apologize to the world again for the horrible media we tend to send out into the universe. You know, everyone's just trying to get by and we're all trying to do our best. So I don't really worry about which direction I'm swimming in. I really worry more about giving clear messages that people understand are coming from a heartfelt love of the planet and its ability to support any species. Certainly not doing a very good job of the four-legged and feathered creatures I in such a fan of, but it's not right now, you know, 2 billion people already with water scarcity issues. Um, if I'm being loud in a direction, ask the people in Cape Town, South Africa, if someone in the 1970s had said, you might want to watch your population, you're going to run out of water someday. I bet they would have said, why didn't you tell us that growing by 4 million people was not a good idea in a water scarce place? Why didn't you tell us? Well, we're telling you. And you know, we're, we're doing our best. Uh, we don't, you know, they keep taking microphones away. I agree. It's harder and harder to get published, harder and harder because we have such downstream concerns, which I don't think are um, unimportant, but they certainly are relatively unimportant. I mean, you can, you know, focus on making sure that deck chairs are arranged on the Titanic, but it's not going to matter when the Titanic is at the bottom of the ocean. So, um, I just continue trying to live with as much integrity as I possibly can and, and realizing I'm not alone. So thanks for this podcast. No worries. Anytime. <laughs> um, Val, any learnings between books or any learning since uh, um, um, first book that's informed your latest in regards to the message of population? Actually, there was. And the funny thing is that in the 90s, I was a very dedicated but very naive <laughs> activist working with numerous environmental and animal rights groups. And I won the Canadian Volunteer Award for my efforts. And it was at this event that made me look back at my decades of work and take stock of what I had accomplished. Unfortunately, I was shocked and extremely disappointed to realize that all of the issues I had been working on had gotten worse instead of better. For example, I had been working on the climate change project that David Suzuki had initiated to reduce fuel consumption in cars by half. And in fact, over a 30-year period, this had been successful. However, the population had doubled in the same time, so the number of cars had doubled. So in reality, we had made no progress at all. We were still producing the same amount of emissions or more. So population growth undermined all of our hard work. And I could see that this same scenario had played out with all of our other critical world issues as well. So that's when I changed my focus to population because I realized 
that it was the driving force behind all of these other issues, including climate change. So I kind of wish that we could clone Greta Thunberg <laughs> and one of her could focus on population because what we really need right now to make a difference is a young, determined champion for the population cause. And so I'm rooting for Greta. <laughs> Yes, I, I hope she's uh, more vocal about it in the years mm -hmm. to come. She's kind of said that infinite growth on a finite planet is a fantasy, so that's the closest we've got from her, which actually segues into the final question for everyone, and that's um, each unique vision for a post-growth world and what you'd like to see in your version of a post-growth world. So not just population, but kind of in everything. Um, what would you like to see? Um, and if you can't see a good outcome, <laughs> well, saying, um, saying you can only see Mad Max as a documentary is a valid answer. Um, but who would like to go first? Well, I like this question. <laughs> I would know immediately, and I'm sure all of you would, uh, when that degrowth of population began, because the population counter on my website and most population sites would slow down and then hesitate, and then the population count would actually start to decrease, sort of like the Titanic engines reversing direction. I don't know about you, but when I watched that movie Titanic, I held my breath waiting for those engines to reverse. And that is the magical moment that will finally trigger degrowth. And I have been working towards that for most of my life, as I would guess all of you have. So I just hope I live to experience that historic occasion in my lifetime. From that moment on, life will change as we know it and things will begin to improve. Just as population growth occurred exponentially, I believe so can degrowth. There will increasingly be fewer people to feed, clothe, shelter, and transport, and we'll finally be able to give back some of the land to nature and increase our wildlife numbers so that no more species have to become extinct the planet will be allowed to finally heal and human conflict over resources will eventually become unnecessary. And I feel that some actions that could cause this to happen, besides the obvious one of reducing the number of children per family, would be replacing the GDP with the genuine progress indicator, a system that factors in the impacts to our environment and population. Another one would be that ecocide would be recognized by the UN as a crime against humanity and hold those committing ecocide accountable. Uh, also, if we stop giving the Vatican veto power at the United Nations conferences, <laughs> then they would lose that power to impede progress that they've gotten away with for decades. So even just these three things uh, would make a huge difference. And they're all things that uh, we don't need any new technology. We just need some political will. And then we will all wonder why it took humanity so long to make the decision 
to take action and work towards sustainability. And this isn't just a pipe dream, as many countries like Japan and Thailand and parts of Europe have already started the degrowth movement. So we know it's possible. And that's what gives me hope for the future. Beautiful vision, Val. Um, Madeline, would you like to wrap it up for Canada? Sure. Um, well, my vision of a post-growth world would obviously have a shrinking human population as well, at least until it reaches a sustainable level. And um, I would hope a shrinking population by having fewer births rather than a massively increased level of death because of a war, famine and the like. And that would allow for the recovery of other life on Earth whose habitats we've been encroaching on steadily more and more. Um, and it would be a world in which humans are a little bit more humble about themselves and recognize that they are part of nature, even if they're clever enough to make their lives more comfortable with technology. I mean, I appreciate all the comforts of life I have with technology, but you know, a world with nature is a, is a more beautiful world. Um, and we would no longer use growth as the metric of well-being, as, as Val said. And we'd, so we'd no longer pursue growth for its own sake. Life would be less frenetic and humans would be less stressed. So we'd suffer less from the diseases of civilization, such as heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. So as I see it, the kind of post-growth world that emerges, because growth will stop, um, will depend a lot on how growth is stopped. In a world that has undergone collapse, um, there'll presumably be a lot of fighting over resources and it'll be very dystopian. Uh, no oil or, or rather no economically viably accessible oil will put a, an end to a lot of things we don't even think about now. We'll no longer have so many gadgets. We might not even have cell phones and computers or at least not everybody will have a cell phone and computer. They'd be limited. I see us as living more like our grandparents did in their youth or maybe even our great grandparents. But I really hope the transition will not be too dystopian. Um, you know, I see the, the relative population to accessible resources and it doesn't look good. Um, but I, I hope the transition will not be too dystopian and I hope that we don't end up with a dictatorship where the few grab all the resources and the many sort of eke out a living and a lot of them starve. So it really is. I mean, I kind of feel like we're on, on a razor's edge or something, and I'm, I'm just hoping for the best. And the more births we prevent, the less suffering there will be. So, Madeline and Val, um, thank you so much for coming on. And it was an honour to meet you both for the first time and uh, hear your excellent um, mouth words. And, um, and but you were wrong about something. They were wrong in that the, the, the part of the vision of the future is that we're all in the green room of, of the Stephen Colbert show, the Bill Maher show, and all ready to talk about this post-growth thing because they, they want to hear about it. And we were, we just, the phone's ringing off the hook. They want to hear our voices because we've been saying this for so long. So uh, I, maybe you don't know that Paul Ehrlich was on The Tonight Show 19 different times, and none of these progressive uh, voices on almost every other issue 
have invited on anyone to talk about or have a show about overpopulation. So that's my post growth. So that's what <laughs> everything else they were right about. <laughs> right on. Now, Karen, you can bring your friends back on any time. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. Yes, See, um, I, I, I told you I'd, I'd lead you well. <laughs> now, Karen, you started us off. Um, so now you can end things, you know, going full circle. It's all very poetic with your vision for a post-growth world. Well, that is my vision, is that is that it is, it's basically on the news every night and it's on the talk shows. It's the number one, because it's the number one thing that's hurting us, it should be the number one thing we're discussing. And my vision is that that it's just always on the news and it's always in the, in the air and go, oh God, not another discussion about overpopulation. Wouldn't that be great? Um, <laughs> so we're all just tired of hearing it on Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon or they're bringing, I don't, Madeline, like she's on Monday night and then Val's on Tuesday night, Michael and then they bring on Roy Beck and everybody's got this voice um, and they see that we're not monsters, and we they see that we're we're really interested in a in a better world that can sustain us. And uh, I, but I also think it, that we have to get back into the classroom and and make sure that ecology and uh, numbers are are part of our daily conversation with children. Um, I, I taught it when I talked about maple syruping. I said, why could why could the native people come in and 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 they didn't just delicately drill holes in trees like we do nowadays, they chopped them down. Why could they do that? And for 10,000 years, why could they do that? And the kids come up with the answer because there were less people and way more trees. And they opened up the forest and new trees could grow. What would happen today if we went through and, and, and chopped down all the maple trees left? You know, Canada, that's a great thing to talk about because they are known what what is the the maple leaf is the is the Canadian flag, but and we know in a climate change world maple trees are going to have very very little production and that's so very sad. But just the idea that our world is set up to balance um, our very top predatory behavior of which we can only control so much. I think that I guess one thing we didn't bring up in this conversation I'd like to end with is I'm really tired of this this tug of war between is it overconsumption or is it overpopulation? Uh, you don't do that, Michael, but so many people do. And I'm just saying, you know, 8 billion people brushing their teeth with plastic toothbrushes is not sustainable. And you really want all that much bad breath in the world. That's all. I'm <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure, everyone, I must say. We've managed to do this in just over an hour so uh well done if everyone's efficiency here so gonna wish you all a good morning and uh, go forth and not multiply <laughs> well thank you very much michael for having us and uh yeah thanks a lot what what a so pleasure You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss, and we just spoke with Val Allen, Madeline World, and Karen Schrag. I resonate with my three guests in terms of the fact that one day, hopefully sometime very soon, population and post growth will be a talk of the town issues that will make it onto mainstream interview shows beyond fringe podcasts such as PGAP. 
The closest I got to making these issues mainstream were a couple of times on the ABC playing defensive to a variety of hostile hosts. That one of them got caught out with a Labour bashing Twitter list this year. It was a special case of uh, schadenfreude for me. We discussed migration policy openly on this interview. If population is controversial, then migration is so often a poison chalice of conversation. One of my prouder moments was actually opening up this conversation to migrants themselves, the result of which is one of SPA's most watched videos. This video gives insight into the challenges faced by the Indian migrant community in Melbourne's Outer Grove Corridor. If nothing else, it gives credence to the thought that relentless suburban sprawl as done under the iron thumb of neoliberalism without adequate infrastructure or considered town planning outcomes results in modern day ghettos. This particularly affects new migrant communities that settle there. What did you think of this episode? Love the multi-layered direct conversation on population? Think we're all a bunch of eco-fascist eugenicists or whatever the latest name-calling trends are these days? Make your thoughts and feelings loud and clear by contacting PGAP, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this episode and others far and wide among your family, friends and enemies. PGAP is made possible by the kind backing of Sustainable Population Australia. What is even kinder is that they allow this podcast to explore all facets of the broad church of degrowth, including guests uh, settled this season who have had very different and even opposite views on the population issue. As such, PGAP is only partially a partisan mouthpiece for my personal and organisational bias, which is much better than we can say for the mainstream media in various failed democracies in the world, including Belarus and Australia. At the risk of sounding tautological, all opinions from guests on this and other episodes are strictly their own. July is a fun month for apocalyptic days. While World Population Day falls on July the 11th, Earth Overshoot Day is July the 28th this year. PGAP will be on the pulse for that day in our next episode. Until then, folks. Until then. <laughs>